Hey, everybody. Nathan here. Uh, real quick, we uh, did Thinking LSAT Live this weekend in New York City, and it was just a fucking blast. We recorded a live podcast during the class there, and unfortunately, part of the way through the episode, Ben's microphone stops working, so it's kind of hard to hear him. But there's some good stuff in there, and uh, yeah, hope you like it. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in New York City. I am Nathan Fox, and right here in the same room with me is Ben Olson. Ben, what is going on? Not a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a whole lot is going on. There is a lot going on. There's a whole group of people here. This is exciting. Yeah, this is our first uh, Thinking LSAT class that we've done together, and it's the end of day one, and so far I'm having... A delightful time. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, this is good. I hope you guys are having fun. Went out drinking last night with the crew. That was fun. Uh, probably going to go out again tonight if anybody's around. Uh, so uh, let's see. Today on the show, we are going to be taking questions from our live audience. So hopefully everybody's got their questions uh, ready to go. Let me run through some of our standard stuff here. We have 625 members now in the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. Uh, this week, Ben, they were busting our balls for our correlation causation error that we made. Fair. Yeah. That was yeah. my fault. That was your fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also was at fault because I did not uh, say anything about it. Yeah, you time. went along with it. Thanks. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I let you hang yourself. But to your point, you did point out that like we were... Saying something that was true about LSAC's materials, I think. Yeah. They're just the, known to be bad. It was because, right, so we were talking about the bad study materials and like how uh, Ben said that, that it was actually causing people to score lower because their scores were going down, that they had used another prep method and their scores had gone down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we said that that was causal. And then uh, somebody jumped all over us on the podcast group and said, hey, correlation does not equal causation. You guys are <laughs> guilty of your flaw of logic. But I defended ourselves by saying, uh, well, yeah, you're right. You're technically right. But of course, correlation does uh, suggest causation. And um, even if correlation does not prove causation, we have reason to believe that these materials are shitty. And now we have a negative correlation with the scores. And so it's very likely correct that uh, this is actually causing people to score less. Yeah, and I also defended ourselves by pointing out that the student who called us out on this, who's going to Stanford in Palo Alto, I'm from Palo Alto, and she said on her Facebook page that she's from Stanford, uh, California. And that is a thing, actually. The, the area that Stanford is on is, has been incorporated or something like that. But if you're from Palo Alto, you're just like, it's cooler to be from Palo Alto than from Stanford. So I called her out on that. You know, I attacked her character. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting fire with fire, Ben Olson. So, yeah. Excellent, Anyways, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook, and you can also bust our balls anytime you want. Uh, we now have 27 patrons on Patreon. Uh, that's up five more supporters, and they are now donating $142 every month. So thank you very much for that. We've set a couple goals for ourselves. Uh, ben, you put the goal of $1,500 a month, because that would yeah. pay for the podcast expenses. Yeah, pay for podcast expenses and some flights to wherever. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, uh, I added the goal of trying to reach 100 patrons just because I like the people uh, supporting the oh, show. Oh, you're like month, a so. people person. Hey. And I'm all about the no, money. No, I love it when people <laughs> contribute $2 a month. Yeah. That's awesome. It's yeah. just like you're on our team. That's great. We have uh, 262 ratings on iTunes now. Thanks, to everybody, for uh, rating and reviewing us. That really helps people to find us. Ben, you said that there's 135 hours of the show that was watched last month on YouTube. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So people are actually using the YouTube channel. You can email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. You can find us on Twitter at thinkinglsat. I personally am at nfox, and Ben is at Olson, uh, at Olson Benjamin. Uh, but Ben, you're kind of starting to use Twitter I'm these days? looking at it. A little bit? You're yeah. looking at it. No, I have an app. Oh, okay. And you've... <laughs> <laughs> And you started using that for your like news feed kind of thing? Yeah, actually, I just disabled the notifications. It was getting annoying. Oh, yeah, no, I don't yeah. get uh, yeah. Only if I get a mention do okay. I, am I going to look at notifications. Um, you can visit strategyprep.com or foxlsat.com to learn more about our services. Of course, you can go to thinkinglsat.com to uh, learn about our joint projects. I guess that's about it. Time for some questions? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Um, how important is formal logic? So, trying to, you know, in the logical, in the logic Bibles, they really have a whole chapter on logic and some most and how they relate and the arrows mm. and all that stuff. Since you guys don't recommend diagramming, I didn't know how important to really study that. Question is how important is formal logic? How important is diagramming? How much of that do we really need to know? What do you think? Well, I would say the only thing you need to know is how to do it, how to find a contrapositive. You know, okay, if A then B, okay, that means if not A then not or not B then not A, and that's that's one thing that's fundamental. And then I think if you have it in your mind that some means at least one, so it could be anywhere from one to everything, and most means more than half, so greater than 50% or all the way up to 100% and then all equals all, I think that's all you need to know. I think sometimes people think that some means not most. Like if some of you here are unhappy, then like, oh, well, that means that most of you are happy. Those sort of things I think you need to get cleared up. But that's it. Like it's just the if-then contrapositive stuff and then some most and all. Yeah, that's about all I teach. I, I teach the definition of sufficient, the definition of necessary, how to find a contrapositive. I will do a little bit on linking rules together. I think it's important that you can recognize if A then B and if B then C. Okay, so if A then C. But I, I don't do a whole lot of drills, and uh, yeah, I'm just not diagramming very much at all. When people say that they studied like formal logic in college, like they, t- they were a philosophy major and they studied formal logic or something, I, I sometimes just get worried because they tend to overcomplicate things, I think. It's just the, the logic is not that fancy Mm-mm. on the LSAT. No. How should we effectively review our time sections? Oh, that's a good question. How should we effectively review our time sections? Well, so I tend to think of test takers in two categories. One is a test taker who's... Uh, basically a higher score and they're finishing uh, the section and they should be finishing or they're almost finishing and they should almost be finishing because they're only getting a few questions wrong. In that case, that person should take the section, 
and then go back and review any questions that they were remotely unsure about before looking up the correct answer. Uh, because they aren't missing that many questions, they have the time to go back and think about this stuff. Not during the 35 minutes, I'm saying just in their life. And um, go back and think about this stuff before they look up the correct answer. And it's a hard thing to do. I mean, if you're struggling with a question, you kind of want to just see, did I get it right or did I get it wrong? And then try to work it out from there. But if you're doing well on the tests, you by forcing yourself to think through these things without knowing what the correct answer is, you're going to get a lot more out of it when you finally do look up the right answer. Um, if you're only getting 15 questions right or something like that, it probably makes more sense just to stop when the 35 minutes is up and start going over the questions that you weren't sure about and looking up the right or wrong answers for those questions. And, I mean, there's kind of a spectrum here, but for some of you it may make sense to finish those questions that you didn't get to, but the lower your score, the less important it is to finish those questions just they're just going to be harder and you need to worry about the easy ones at the beginning of the section. But the bottom line here is that the better you're doing, the more you want to force yourself to do the work on your own. The worse you're doing, the more help you can seek out by looking up the right answer uh, sooner and just doing fewer problems and stuff like that. But as your score goes up, you just got to force yourself to do more and more on your own. Um, And then, yeah, then you'll push yourself further. Yeah, that's that's an interesting idea. I mean, it's a battle of will in a lot of ways. The LSAT is just like it's you versus this test, and it's you you have to like force yourself to understand it, force yourself to figure it out. So checking the answer key and finding you know oh the answer key says that the answer is this. I don't think that's the best way to do it. We we want to be. Um, you just want to be solving it for yourself. Now, if you don't have time, you know, if, if you've just got very little time, um, I think it's okay to just look at your mistakes. I do think that that's okay. But um, if you have more time, like Ben says, I mean, review all the ones that you were struggling with at all and just try to try to solve it for yourself. Yeah, I would add two more things here, and that is one: a lot of times that I'm when I'm working with people one on one, they will start talking about a question that they got wrong, and they'll explain it, and we'll get to a point where we're like, yeah, I think you understand why the right answer is right, and why the answer that you chose is wrong, and possibly even the other answer choices why they're wrong. Um, and it's like, okay, you feel good about that, and they're like, yeah, that makes sense to me. And then my next question is, well, why? Why do you think you didn't figure that out during the test? And sometimes it's as simple as, well, I really didn't understand all of this that we just talked about during the test. So I don't know that I could have figured it out. But the other half of the time, they're like, this isn't actually that complicated. Like, I can, It can make sense to me now. Why didn't I make that realization during the exam? And that can be very insightful into what you're doing as you go through a time section and maybe what you should not be doing. Were you rushing? Were you misidentifying the question type and that made you kind of go in a different direction? Were you not predicting the answer like what we were doing earlier today? Um, Did you not do worlds? Like, What was it about your execution that failed, not just your logical understanding? Because I think most people are obsessed with like just trying to understand 
the logic, which is great, but it's like, well, what about your process as well? What about your process failed? Um, that will help you with all future questions and sections and time sections, and that's what a lot of us are struggling with. Yeah. One thing I see people do a lot that, I, that I'm a, slightly concerned with is, though, um, do you teach people to circle the questions that they struggle with as they go through? Uh, I, it's not something they need to do, but I do say, hey, like if you're not sure about this question, circle it more just for after the fact. Are you saying right? Like, well, so I just I've noticed I think that sometimes, and maybe not everybody does this, but a certain type of student does this, where they um, they circle questions like giving themselves permission to miss the question. Mm. Like they 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 are it's, it's it's students who have low accuracy. They're attempting too many questions, mm-hmm. and I see that they've got a whole bunch of questions that they've circled. Mm. And it's like, so what did you do here? You you did half of the job. You couldn't figure it out, so you just or you didn't figure it out. So you just circled it, and moved on, and started doing other questions. Mm-hmm. It makes me a little bit concerned when people mm-hmm. are are circling, like especially if you've circled like five questions. Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe you should have done two fewer questions and figured out three of those ones that you circled. So um, yeah, when you're done, review the ones you were puzzled with. I, I actually think you should be able to go back to the section and figure out which ones you were struggling with anyway right you should sure, be able to glance remember. at those arguments and yeah. just tell so i don't know about the, the circling is just a weird thing i don't like to it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like a give up mm-hmm. and move on too quickly yeah so, anyway yeah uh, on test day let's say you get to a question you really don't feel comfortable with would you recommend skipping that question going to the one next to it or really digging in on that one question question is on test day you find a question that you are really struggling with should you skip it yes more like a not logic game but more reading comp or logical reasoning my gut says no because you know maybe you can skip one question per section but what i think i see students do it's very similar to what i was just talking about with the circling is like if you skip five questions you are definitely now doing harder questions on average. Those que- you thought those questions were tough, but wait till you get to number nineteen. You know, so if you're if you're sk- if you find yourself skipping more than maybe one, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, one or two. You just. I don't think that's unreasonable, though. I think there are times where it's just like, this is legitimately tough, and so okay, just stop spinning your wheels but it, yeah you, what you want to avoid is this trap of like giving up too easily because a lot of times you just reread the passage and you dig in a little bit more and you're like oh this makes total sense i mean i got like none of them in the first 10 i, I don't think you should ever be skipping a question in the first 10 mm-hmm. those are those are definitely easier but then actually the same goes for when you're in 11 through 15 i mean those questions are Easier than 16 through 20. Yeah. I mean, in, sometimes you'll get like a really hard question in there. And yeah. if you're picking up on that because you've, you've put in that effort into the passage, you tried and you tried again and you're like, <laughs> okay, well, my best guess is C, but I'm really kind of lost here. Um, there might be some value to that. But yeah, you kind of want to limit yourself. It's like you have only so many timeouts in a game, right? 
you only have a couple passes in a game. That's not really skipping, though, at that point. You know, that's just like getting as close as you can to the correct answer and being okay with the fact that you didn't all the way solve it. But, you know, you should be able to narrow it down, probably. And yeah. Is that because actually that's kind of how I interpreted your question is that you're you're putting in all this effort and then you're like eventually like, well, should I just let go as opposed to, yeah, definitely if you're just randomly skipping, I don't even know. Yeah, like that should be zero. Right. Never. Right. Well, I I guess I I thought that I I misinterpreted because I think you should I think you should always be able to narrow it down. I mean, you've spent the time to read it. You know the question. You've looked at it a couple times. Yeah, so pick as close as you can get. You know, I'm not 100% certain on every question. In fact, I'm probably pretty frequently, I'm somewhere, be you know, I, 90%, right? Or it feels like I'm 80, 90% on it, but there's still two answers and I can't really tell. And I'm going to go with my gut at some point. And it, it might feel like a 50-50, but you'll end up getting it right like 90% of the time because you'll get better and better instincts about the test. But yeah, that's not skipping. That's just being okay with a little bit of uncertainty. Um, you, the best you can do is the best you can do, right? I mean, I'm not advocating sit there for 10 minutes on one question. So keep going until you feel like you're not getting any closer to the correct answer. That's what I always say. You know, if, if it just, if the, Ben said wheels spinning, the second your yeah, your wheels are spinning, you're not getting any closer. You know, it's not these three garbage answers. It's got to be one of these two. You can't really tell the difference. Okay, well, fine. Now maybe it's time to just pick one and, and move forward. Um, how do you approach evaluate the argument questions? Hmm. How do you approach evaluate the argument questions? Those are the, those are the ones where they give you an argument. We know that there's a flaw in the argument because uh, you can't evaluate an argument that's rock solid. Well, I guess you could evaluate it, but these almost always have problems. And they say something like, which one, which one of the following answers, I don't know if it says if true. Does it say if true? It's, it says that we evaluate the argument questions stem almost always use the word evaluate or judge. Or yeah. It'll, which one of the following would be most useful in evaluating yeah, so the argument above? Yeah, yeah. So which one of the following would be most useful in evaluating the argument above? And I tend to think of these question types as strengthened and weakened questions together in the same package because the correct answer is such that um, it can go either way. Usually it's worded in some way where it says whether or not Jim likes ice cream. And so it's not telling you that Jim likes ice cream. It's just whether or not Jim likes ice cream. And it's like, well, if Jim does like ice cream, that really, really helps this argument. I feel a lot better about the conclusion. And if Jim doesn't like ice cream, then I feel a lot worse about this conclusion. So you're looking for an answer that uh, is going to have an impact on the conclusion very positively or very negatively. Answer choices that are sort of moot are the ones that don't help you evaluate the argument. I mean, it all comes down to the conclusion. Does knowing the answer to this question that's being posed in this answer choice affect how I feel about the conclusion, both either positively or negatively? Uh, It could go either way, depending on what the answer is, but it's going to have an impact on that conclusion. 
Uh, if it doesn't really have an impact, then no, it's not the yeah. answer. But you can play with um, extreme answers to that question. You know, like the, the one that you're trying to pick, right? Was, I think C might be the answer here. You could think about, okay, so if the answer to this question is zero, how does that make me feel about the argument? If the answer to this question is a million, how does that make me feel about the argument? And it, it, zero should make you feel either better or worse, and then a million should make you feel either worse or better, the opposite of, of how the other... And that's how you know it's a good question to ask, because the answer to the question will change your assessment of the argument. Like, if, if the answer to this question is one way, I feel really good about the argument. If the answer to the question is opposite, I feel really shitty about the argument, well, then that's the correct answer, because that's the incisive question to ask. Okay, so, so that's the extremes, and that should help me pinpoint Yep. Yeah. If you're reviewing a section and you haven't finished the section, are you going over all the questions you haven't answered as well? Uh, I think that that's a... So the question is, uh, if you don't finish the section, should you go uh, with the benefit of unlimited time? Should you continue doing the questions that you didn't get to? Well, reviewing those as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the answer is yes, Qualified, yes. It's yes for most people who are scoring like 155 or above. But when you're scoring like 140, then, you know, you probably really don't, like how much can you really learn from a super nasty, like we saw some pretty difficult questions today earlier, right, on that one number 19 and that number 24 that we did. Those ones for people who are scoring 140, I just don't know that you're going to be really learning anything from studying those really hard questions. And I, I think you could actually end up frustrating yourself and causing yourself lots of trauma uh, by, by doing those ones. They're just kind of like beyond your level. But for most people who, you know, like let's say you're completing 20 questions in the section and you're getting, you know, you should be getting like 17 of those right, then yeah, by all means, you should take the extra time to do 21 through 25. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I agree. Okay. Can we do a law school question? Or is it just LSAT? Law school question, sure. Well, I was just going to say, uh, looking back now, both of you guys have done, obviously, your JDs. Any uh, law school exams are obviously very difficult, and obviously, a wide variety of different types of exams, but did any mistakes you made early on like, that you, you know, Mistakes during what? So mistakes during. Yes. Mistakes that I made. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly did things wrong in law school. As Ben says, the biggest mistake I ever made was going to law school in the first place. I should not have been in law school. I did. I did not know lawyers. I did not know what lawyers did when I got to law school and realized what lawyers do. I was like, oh my God, I would never do this. I'm not doing this work. So I just shouldn't have been there to begin with. Um, but the, like, so things that I did wrong in law school, I can think of, I can think of a couple. I, you know, one main one at uh, Hastings, they force you in your 1L year to take a semester of moot court. And uh, I hated it. I hated it so much. 
And really the reason why I hated it so much is that I was just so ill prepared. I like just did not do the work. I just didn't want to do it. And I didn't do the preparation. And then I had to do like oral arguments, like fake oral arguments when you don't know your shit. And it was just so awful. I was, I was completely miserable. I mean, I just hated it. I was hating my life. And, uh, yeah, if I had it to do over again, um, if I was going to go to law school, which I wouldn't, but if I was, I would definitely prepare more for that shit because then I just, it would have been so much better if I knew everything backward and forward. Instead, I just like half fast everything. So then I, I was miserable. I also would, um, definitely, I would have tried to sit like more in the front row and I would have, I would, uh, force myself to participate more, like be a gunner, be a gunner. Wait, that's contrary uh, to the advice you've heard as a consulting <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would have gotten more out of it, I'm sure. And just, hey, you're going you're gonna to know the professors. You're going to get a grade bump for your participation. They're never going to call on you in the um, Socratic method. They're never going to put you on the spot if you're the one who's always sitting there in the front and volunteering and stuff. You're, not, you're never going to have to worry about getting called on. So if you don't actually prepare one day, you'll get away with it because you're the guy who's always talking normally. What do you think? You're talking too because then you figure out what's wrong with your thinking and now you start just keeping your mind up and take advantage of that time in class to prepare for the final, which is the sole determination of your grade. Yeah. It's kind of a shitty thing about law school, but I would add that, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, like, <clears throat> one thing that I, this is a skill that you have to develop over time, and I think it's what law school is trying to teach you, but I, I didn't, it didn't really sink into for me until I was in 2L, and that is that when you read, you read a lot of cases, right? You read these old, boring cases, and I, and I think, I don't know, I'm assuming a lot of people might do this, but you go in and you read the case, and you get all obsessed and sidetracked with the details. But you gotta get really good at the main point. Like, what's, what's, step back from the little details that are happening in this particular case. The details are important for informing you about what's going on in the moment, but you kinda wanna step back and just extrapolate from that case, like, what is, what is the what's the principle that the judge who wrote this case seems to be operating under? Like, what's their their rule of thumb or their their life value system that seems to be guiding their decision in this case? Because if you can extrapolate that, then you're going to do fine on the final. Because the final is not about all these little details, and it's so overwhelming. I mean, you're reading so many cases, you're just going to be crushed. Um, when I finally realized this, like to end of two L, my two L year, like the classes became so much easier because I just read cases and it's like I didn't walk away from these five cases thinking, well, I got to remember this and this and this and this. I was just like stepping back. I would take away a little lesson from each one, and then I would step back and put them together and be like, what's the overarching theme here? And it's like, oh, okay, they don't want you to be dishonest when you're you know, in a position of public authority or whatever. Whatever the rule is that you gotta take away. And when you take away that rule, it's so much easier to remember and then you can apply that in a bunch of other cases, which is the whole point of law, I think. Like, what's the underlying rule? 
and now it's applied to someone else. One hilarious thing about that is that many shitty law professors basically train their class to do the exact opposite of that because they, the way they use the Socratic method, they're so lazy about it. That, you know, the reason why they use the Socratic method is basically so that it like, forces everybody to do the work, like read the case. And, but the, the, the professors will be like asking you details from the case which is like exactly the opposite of what Ben is talking about. Like the point is to get the principle, not to be able to name the plaintiff and where did they work and what was the, you know, like all those stupid factual details from the case are really not the point. But many professors, I mean, I found that my professors, like 90% of them were just bad teachers. I mean, they were not trying, they were just not educating anybody about anything. They were just like dragging people through these cases using the Socratic method and not actually doing any real instruction. Well, they may not be professors because they want to teach. They're probably there for reputation, developing articles, and stuff like that. Yeah, they're, they're academics, which does not make them teachers. I mean, many of the best teachers that I had were adjuncts. They weren't, they weren't law professors at all. They were actually just lawyers. And they were there uh, teaching because they loved teaching. Like I had a family law professor who was a, a fancy, uh, really high-priced, like you know, family lawyer, divorce attorney guy, and he like cried three different times during the semester talking about his clients and stuff, and just like really telling us details from actual legal practice. And that dude was awesome, but he was there for the love of it, not not to uh, be a fancy academic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, I would add one other thing. I, when I was a 2 old, so maybe these things are correlated or causal, I don't know. It's also the same time that I read the book, Getting to Maybe, um, How to Excel on Law School Exams. And that... I was just going to say it's on the list of, like, happening to Google, like, top books I should be reading. As a yeah, yeah. So anytime someone tells me that they got into law school, I usually fire back an email that says, by the way, just buy this book on Amazon. <laughs> And get your the get get the exams like go to the library and check out the old exams. You've heard this tip before, right? But the old exams many times are just in the law library from your professor from that exact class, and you can get those old exams and you can start doing those on the first day of the semester. You can start reading through those old exams, and you should definitely by the time the semester is halfway through, you should definitely be like doing practice finals. Uh, it, it will help your grades a lot, and it'll help you focus on the right things too. 
you'll realize that all the cases that they have you read in the first like third of the semester are just not even relevant to the exam because they're all old law. It's old law. The law has changed. They illustrate to you how law changes over time, and you get that. Not it's not, yeah, it's just, that's not what the final is going to be about. Kind of related to that, one of the episodes you guys talked about revisionist history, and that one episode about the command of language and the use of that in law. Are there any other things similar to that that you would recommend that we listen to or read? Because that was awesome. Hmm. Question is, uh, other, so we, she said we mentioned revisionist history, one of the episodes of re- revisionist history recently, and you liked that? You listened to that episode and liked it? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty great. Um, so for similar stuff to that? Or anything. Similar recommendations for smart shit? I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I listen to a couple of different podcasts, but I don't know that I could really recommend them for that purpose. I would just find, yeah, just find, find stuff you like. I don't know. I, um, I tend to listen to just podcasts by smart people talk and they're just always smart. People are just talking about smart things. You know, I listen to this poker podcast. I never play poker. I haven't played poker in 10 years, but I still listen to the thinking poker podcast, which yes, the namesake of the show. (laughs) I still listen to that show because it's just smart guys and they're talking about smart stuff. I recently started listening to a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons. It's called adventure zone. It's delightful. I just love it so much. They're, they're so fun. They're having so much fun. But I'm like literally listening to dudes just playing Dungeons and Dragons for like hours and hours and hours. Uh, I would add that, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks, you know, um, and this, I've mentioned this book on the podcast before, but it was a mind bender, but not like, oh, that's so weird or trippy. It was like, this guy, um, well, the book is called Why the, West, Why the West Rules for Now by Ian Morris. And he, it's a long, a very long book, but um, that he goes through a bunch of theories that people have as to why the West rules for now. And then he has his own theory, and the whole book is like correlation, causation on steroids. So I remember just sitting there and listening to his argument about something, and he would go through this, the correlation of all these different things, and then he would go through why that correlation is not necessarily a causal argument. But um, it wasn't like the LSAT in the sense that it wasn't simple. You know, it, there's 10 variables going on at once. And so for that reason, I just, sometimes I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, but I find myself going back and listening again. So. I feel like it really pushes your mind, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I could give a book recommendation, too. Um, this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Has anybody ever read that book? I have read that book. I hated how wordy it was, though. Is it? Yeah, by Kahneman, right? Uh, Kahneman? Or Kahneman? Yeah. Kahneman? Yeah. Yeah, you could give yeah, it a shot. It's the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the central thesis is a dichotomy between two modes of thought. System one is fast, instinctive, and emotional. System two is slower, more deliberative, more logical. 
The book delineates cognitive biases associated with each type of thinking. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that that book is pretty popular right now, but it, if you get into like these books that are all about intuitive thinking and um, versus analytical thinking, which you're doing a lot when you're taking the LSAT, actually, but uh, the original book that kind of started this whole series of books and the, the, the research into it, or at least got people interested in it, is called Sources of Power by Gary Klein. And it is, it's still like a classic. It's so cool. He just walks through all these different examples of how your intuition, when you have experience, is often better than your analytical process. And anyways, Kahneman's book references that. Every book on in that field references that book. Because he was like the guy who first showed that um, intuitive thinking, if you have experience, and that's the big key, uh, is often way better, way faster than just normal uh, thinking. Like Blink, you guys have heard of Blink? Yeah. yeah. His book is just a complete copy of Swords of Power. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he's a genius for doing that. He's making money. So. When would uh, y'all recommend going to all schools and so do that with the application cycle coming up in September? Would it be good to start that this summer, or would you recommend after you apply so you already have an application in? Question is, when should you do law school visits? Like, should you do it now before you apply, or should you wait until after you apply? Um, I don't. They're mostly on the road. Like the admissions folks are on the road a lot during the fall, but uh, you could still do visits though during the fall, huh? Hmm. I don't know why not. There'll still be people in the office and law students to take you around to classes and stuff. Are you going to visit to decide whether to go? Um, it's going to be for both. Um, I do, I'm going to visit to make sure I like the area, especially sure like Chicago it. and Asheville and stuff like that, to make sure I like the area and the school itself and the atmosphere, but then also to show that I'm serious about yeah. that school. So I think both of those things are better done once you know it's an option, even. Okay. Right, like, because maybe you go visit some school, you're like, I love it here, I love Harvard. But the other thing is if they've gotten back to you and you're now being waitlisted, right, now you can go visit and you haven't already visited, now you feel like, oh, I'll fly out again. You're just like, I can go visit and do two things at once. Show them that you're interested and at the same time see if you really want to go there. So in deciding whether to apply, I think I would just say if there's any possibility that you might want to go there a lot. Because you because even if you don't want to go there, sometimes we apply so we can use it as leverage for another school. Yeah, yeah I th- I think I agree with that. I'm not sure that you're gonna get that much out of like going and visiting, sitting in on one class and talking to two people for an afternoon or whatever. I'm not sure that you're going to find out that much about the school anyway. Um, I tend to think that the visits are a little bit overrated. Uh, And then, of course, exactly what Ben just said, that, yeah, why not wait until you're admitted and it's a legitimate contender? Like, I mean, hey, if they didn't give you a scholarship, you're not going there anyway. So why... You know, I think you should, yeah, wait. <laughs> Visit your two best options or something like that. And uh, there's no, there's definitely no rush to do that. Yeah. How do you go 
Okay, so the question is how you use schools that you applied to for leverage when you negotiate. Um, you just ask. You know, you, you've got to... You, part of it is just putting yourself in a better... Ha having a better walking away point, right? The fact that even if they don't know, you're willing to walk away, which makes you a much better negotiator. Um, some schools have programs where they're going to formally, like, review another school's offer. But you can also... I mean, other, at other schools, when you just ask them for more money, right? You politely ask them for more money. And you could say, I have several competitive offers in hand. They can ask you for the specifics, at which point you can show them or not show them. Obviously, don't lie. <laughs> um, but, but I think it's, it's, it's like giving yourself an alternative. You apply to multiple schools so that you have multiple different competing offers, and you may or may not end up actually playing them off one another. It's, it's more just like get yourself into the best walking away position you can. Yeah, and the email can just be as simple as dear admissions whatever, or dear Joe, um, I have been accepted to X with a partial scholarship, a full scholarship, whatever it is that they're giving you. And I really, really like to go to your school, but Yeah, I mean, you're going to be professional, right? You're going to be cordial, but you can also be firm. Lawyers are not shy about asking for things for their client, and you're going to be representing yourself in this negotiation, and you just got to be firm with them. You just you got to you got to know what your what your value is in the marketplace. That's another reason to apply broadly so that you get multiple offers so that you know what you're worth. But then you've got to tell them, this is what I'm worth, and this is, I'm demanding this. I mean, you don't need to say demanding, but you can, you get the point. I want to know if you guys have any good success stories of people who have either not gone to law school or have gone to law school well from your past students. Just anything you want to share? Success stories? You can talk a lot of people out of not going, or I mean, out of going. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had one student in my San Francisco class just recently who, uh, after the first weekend, sent me a very nice text message, really long, like effusive text message about how I had helped her make the decision not to go to law school and that she was she, she had she had needed to spend the thousand dollars and some time on the LSAT and get she needed she had needed to like take that step of okay i'm really i'm i'm taking a step in this direction and then had realized that she already makes more money at her other job and and that just law was not going to be the thing for her but she but she was like really thanking me a lot for that and that that felt really good actually because it's like hey i'm 
I'm trying to help students as much as I can help them with their life, right? Make the smart decision. And very frequently, the smart decision is not to go. So you're asking for success stories of those who didn't go? Either direction. Either direction, she said. Or they go and then they're successful? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't think of like specific people, but there are definitely people, especially on LinkedIn, because I try to join, you know, whatever link, I guess. class, <laughs> 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 uh, it's cool to hear from people who have gone to law school and now they're working as a, an attorney at a big firm in the city, and they now seem older and more mature than I am. <laughs> And you know they have a responsible job. They wear a suit to work and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I think I definitely run into people who seem happy um, with what they're doing. But I think that's also because they went in knowing what they're getting into. So if you know what you're getting into, and there's still this deep desire to do it, then I think you'll be happy doing it in most cases. Yeah. So most people that you guys have probably turned away from law school is it because that the, the, the LSAT was just not for them and they just didn't want to go through the LSAT process or was it also mainly because law just didn't appeal to them anymore? So the question is, do most people that we turn away from law school or encourage them not to go to law school, I guess, uh, did, they, did they turn away because of the LSAT itself and its challenges or did they turn away because uh, they believed that law was not for them? I would say it's both. It's half and half, right? There's some people who's just like, hey, this isn't working out for you LSAT-wise, which strongly suggests this is probably not a good decision for you law school-wise, because the LSAT is somewhat of an indicator of your future success in a, in a field that is obsessed with words and um, trying to think of the right word, but just being annoying in that way. And then... Uh, then there are people who also just, they're thinking, they're doing well on the test, but they're thinking about what they would actually be doing as a lawyer, researching LexisNexis, oh my god. And, <laughs> it's fun, knowing that, okay. <laughs> knowing that that's not ultimately what's for them, but they didn't go, they didn't come into this process with that in mind, they came into this process as, oh, if I could be a doctor or a lawyer, I'm successful in life, and that's a horrible reason. That's why I went to law school, which was awful. My distant relative was a successful attorney, and I read a bio about him, and I said, mm, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I can be an attorney as well. It was literally a 30-second decision. And then I started telling people, oh, I'm going to law school. And they're like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, yeah, you bet. <laughs> I'm going to be an attorney. <laughs> So you guys wouldn't go back to law school? Would you guys ever teach? Like, has anyone ever asked you to teach a class? Or like, would you consider, I have the worst voice, consider going and teaching? Would we consider going and teaching in law school? Um, I am not in the slightest qualified to do that. So I don't, I mean, Ben actually practiced a bit. Ben took the bar and practiced a bit. So you, you would... Maybe. Well, so the funnest, the most interesting class at, uh, that I took was um, trial advocacy, 
because uh, as I was taking it, I remember just sitting there thinking about all the different skills they were teaching. They were teaching a lot of different skills. Like when you do cross-examination, you come up and you, you ask a bunch of questions and they have to answer those questions. But uh, you stop at a certain point because you don't want them to answer any more questions because then they could explain themselves. You want the jury to draw a certain conclusion, right? So like um, the person may have done something that looked really bad, but ultimately it was very innocent given some other information. But you don't want the jury to know that other information. You just want to talk about the bad looking thing that they did and then be like, okay, thank you very much, you know, and you sit down or whatever. But anyways, the point is, is that class was like, had some really valuable skills about how, what to say, exactly how to ask things and stuff like that, right? But it was ultimately, about how to lie. Like straight up, it, it was just open and that was, and so it was kind of a shocking thing for me as I was sitting there in the class, I'm like, this professor is just open and like, this is the best way to get people to believe X even though X is not true. <laughs> and that's, so it was, one of the, it was part of, you know, the beginning of the end of my association. <laughs> but, um, despite the lack of morality, I guess, with that class, that would be a really fun thing to teach. <laughs> and so something like that, or even like, even the law class, I, I think it, it's, law professors have kind of a fun job because they don't have to do anything except grade your final exam. And some are even lazy enough to turn it into a multiple choice thing, which pissed off some students at my school because they were like, now you're not doing anything, right? All you do is come lecture. But... It's a Socratic method, you know the cases really well, you just get to kind of play with students, you know? My, I, I think I mentioned this, uh, my first day of class, I got called on twice, did I say this? So, my name is Olsen, right, my last name, so it's right in the middle of the roster. So I went to um, Civil Procedure, that was my first class, and the professor, um, oh shoot, I forgot his name, but anyways, he said, the first person he called, I said, Mr. Olsen, and I was like, oh yeah, and I was sitting in the front too. Um, I said, yeah, right here. He goes, well, tell me about the case. And I, I hadn't read it, but we were supposed to. pretended, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, the, and he knew right away. So I was just like a little mouse cat. <laughs> <laughs> asking questions, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And worse. He's like, well, um, it sounds like we should ask someone else. <laughs> and then that happened, and then, uh, you know, so you, the way it worked at GW, at least, uh, they kept everyone together. So, like, you had a, everyone, like, a group of people were taking one class, and then they'd go take another class together, and I think the idea was that they'd all get to know each other. So then we all moved to this next class, and it was contracts, and the same thing happened. <laughs> 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 had you done the reading for that? But did you do the reading in that? that oh. I think the, the first impression was just the most, you know, damaging. <laughs> Ouch. But I, at that point, I do remember some people laughing a little bit, actually, in the second class. They were like, oh, it's that guy again. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But um, I think that would, I mean, I like teaching the outside, and I could see myself really just, if I knew a subject area really well, because you'd have to know it really well, and that would be very boring. But once I got to that point where you knew it really well, that would be fun. You just get up there, like, oh, here we go again. Like, what did you guys think of this case? Oh, let's see, uh, you know, Miss uh, 
Thompson, what do you think about this? And it's like, oh, you didn't do the reading list. You did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get paid a decent amount. And I don't know. But you have to publish and stuff, too, so that would be painful. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's fine. Do you want to become, <laughs> it's fine. Do you want to become a professor? No, I need someone that left law and they teach now and they love it. So I was just curious if Yo, okay. you'd ever do it. Well, teaching's just the greatest. Yeah. yeah. Those, those that can do, those that can't teach. Is that the same? Can do, can't those teach. Those that can oh, do. Yeah. Those that can't teach. That is a common insult for teachers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, we're getting killed over here. Uh, we've all learned a lot from you guys. Is there anything that stands out that you guys have learned from the collective us? Things things that we've learned from our students. Yeah. I mean, I've I've learned tons for like my whole method for the LSAT has evolved over the years, you know, and I I continue to steal best practices from students. Um, Logic games specifically, I'll look over somebody's shoulder and I'll see some nifty way that they are diagramming something and I'll just ad- adopt that immediately and incorporate it into my method. Yeah. I, just the other day someone said, oh, for necessary assumption, you need to, you can do the negation test. It starts with an N. I was like, well, that's a good point. And then she said, and in a sufficient assumption question, you generally want to I've had like hundreds of those tips over the years. You know, someone says something and you're like, oh yeah, that's insightful. And then immediately from then on, I take credit for that. You know? Like, this is one I'm going to give to that student, but that's, that's about it. Everything else I take ownership. <laughs> Uh, what yeah. type of wall did you practice? Oh, so, to be fair, I didn't, like, practice practice. I did take the bar, and I, so I think there might be a little confusion here. I, I, I clerked at the DOJ in the Civil Rights Division, um, but while I was there, I wrote a brief for ICE. So, you know, I went into the Civil Rights Division and ended up trying to get people out of the country. Someone had applied for asylum protection, and the job of the United States at that point was to point out how their story was likely false and get them sent back. So that's what I did. (laughs) (laughs) That was my job. And then from there. Yeah, so then, so then, um, so then I, so I took the bar, and that was painful, and I still paid my dues to Virginia, so that if any godforsaken reason I needed a JD, or like a license, or whatever, I wouldn't have to take it again. But, um, then I just started working for the professor I worked for in law school, and did the grant, so I didn't really practice that. Oh, okay, all right. Tom. Um, so as teachers, I was just curious, we, we've been talking about law school. Um, it seems like you guys have been quite critical of the way like, law school is being taught. I'm honestly curious, like, what facets of the law school experience would you guys change 
What, yeah. What facets? Uh, the question is, what facets of law school would we change if we could if we could change it? And yeah. Yeah. So one, it would be shorter. The other thing you got to realize is that when I after I was at the DOJ, right, I went and I worked for this law professor who had started his own company doing legal writing consulting. And the industry is huge. And the reason it's huge is that um, you go to law school for three years and then you go start working at a law firm. And when you go to that law firm, they ask you to write memos, they write, they ask you to write briefs or whatever documents it is. And law firm partners uh, can't use what you write for them. I mean, really, like you write it and they're like, okay, well, hmm, um, we're going to have to teach you how to write. <laughs> so you go to three years of law school, you shell out tons of money, and you walk into a field unprepared to actually contribute effectively. I mean, they plan on losing money on you at first and then developing your skills and then making a lot of money off of you as you get better. Um, and so this company that I was working for, we were going to law firms and we were telling people how to write. How do you write a memo? How do you write a brief? Um, everything from style all the way up to structure and content. And so in my mind, law schools are failing because you're spending three years of your life and leaving unprepared to actually do what you need to do. And what's ironic is that a lot of uh, teachers who have been tasked with teaching students those skills don't have those skills because they <laughs> never actually practiced law. They, what they did is they got really high grades at a good law school and they maybe, maybe they might have practiced for a year or two, but they come back in really quickly because they have high grades and this was their plan from the beginning. And other academics are impressed by their grades, not by their actual real world experience. So then when they come in, they have these theories about how things should be done. Has anyone ever heard of the IRAC method mm -hmm. of writing? So it stands for issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. It is complete shit. It has nothing to do with the real world. Partners don't want you to write in that way. There might be a few out there, but if you go to good firms with good partners who are successful and they're writing cases that are, or briefs that are persuasive and winning, they don't do that at all. You start with your conclusion, you tell the court what's up, and then you start telling why, and you tell it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And so, um, if I were to actually kill myself and start at John Roberts School of Law, <laughs> it would be shorter, it would be one to two years, and it would be intensely focused on skills like, let's go write a brief. Because if you go write a brief, you then have to start learning how to think like a lawyer. You, you know, it's like, oh, this is the goal. Let's figure out everything we need to know to accomplish that goal. Whereas law schools seem to have flipped it upside down. They're like, well, we think you need to understand the theory behind law, and then that will just enable you to have the skills necessary. Um, the theory is important, but it's only should only be thought about or discussed or, or contemplated in the context of the trying to accomplish a particular task, such as writing a brief or persuading a judge to do this or whatever. And um, it's kind of like reading a bunch of LSAT theory books and not actually ever doing any practice problems. You just like have all these ideas in your head, but they don't mean anything until you hit the ground and run into an actual example. And then you're like, oh, I can see how that's helpful, but it's only in the context of that example. So law schools should become way more example-based and I think it should just all be briefs. I honestly think that would be the most valuable thing. 
go write a brief persuading the judge to do X, Y, Z. And then you have to like, then you have to go do research, and you're like, why am I looking up these cases? Well, that's, now you figure it all out, but it's with this goal in mind. And I think that could even be done maybe in a year and a half. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. Shorter for sure. Yeah. More focused on actual legal practice. I also just, I can't believe that they don't prepare people for the bar exam. I can't believe that everybody graduates from law school and immediately has to take a bar prep class. Yeah. Like, what are you doing if you're there for three years? You, you should, be, on graduation day, you should be able to sit for the bar and pass it. Mm-hmm. If you're in school for three goddamn years, paying $50,000 a year. And that's the only point of law school. Like, is why are you to, going to law school not to pass the bar? Right. How, how uh, that just seems fairly simple to me. Um, I think one reason why they don't is potentially because admission standards have fallen so far. I, I don't know. Like they're, because that's another change that I would make is I, I think they need to raise the bar on who they're letting into law school. They're just, right now they're admitting tons of people who are never going to practice law. They're admitting people who are going to fail the bar. I mean, here in New York, uh, but also, you know, in, in California where I am uh, most of the time, people fail the bar. It's hard. And law school is, I think maybe what they're doing is they're just sort of like sweeping that under the rug a little bit. Like, oh, well, you know, that's not our responsibility to prepare you for the bar. That's Kaplan or Barbary or whatever. That's, a, that's not us. Well, okay. Could have been you. you. You were charging them money for three years. Really? Now they're not equipped to, to pass the bar? It's, it's either your admission standards or it's the job of education that you're doing there. I, I don't know why, why that's... How's that not obvious? <laughs> makes no sense. I was going to recommend two books that you should, if you end up going to law school and you want to become a good attorney, you absolutely have to read at least one of these. The first one is Legal Writing in Plain English by Brian Gardner. If you, are any of you familiar with Black's Law Dictionary? That was authored by Brian Gardner. So he's kind of, he's, he's a man in that way. Anyways, he wrote Legal Writing in Plain English, and it's a bunch of exercises, and they have you rewrite sentences and show you how you should have written better. And it's just, like, those are serious fundamental skills, and if you go through that book, you will come out, well, first of all, actually, this is how it helps you. If you read that book your, the summer of your first year, and you go to a firm, and you have to do any sort of work for them, like you write a memo or anything, and you've read that book, your memo is going to be so much better than the other people's memos that you will stand out and you will probably be invited back just because of that alone. Because they don't expect you to do anything yourself. Like, they'll give you assignments and they expect you to be like, oh, great. Thanks for contributing this. And if you write something good, they're going to, you're going to stand out. The other book, and this is only if you want to go into like advocacy as opposed to transactional drafting, would be Point Made by Ross Guberman. That book is also example-based. It's like, if you would do anything with briefs, he gives you tons of examples from the best legal writers um, in the world. John Roberts, Lynn um, Kagan, uh, what's that conservative guy uh, on the Seventh Circuit? You guys know him? Starts with a P. Posner? Posner, yeah. Scalia, other good writers and he says, look, this is how they started their brief in this case. And they give you like 10 examples. You're like, oh, wow, this is a really good way to start a brief. And now here's the really good way to go into the argument and all that stuff. Anyways, 
those are skills that, unfortunately, law schools are not giving you. You have to go out and develop them yourself. But if you do, you will stand out because lawyers are just professionally paid writers. And that's how you stand out, is you write good shit. And people say, oh, I don't have to edit this very much. I love what you've given me, and now my job is done, as opposed to now I have to teach you how to do this. If those books don't sound appealing, um, it's possible that you're not really cut out for this career. I mean, you, you got to understand what you're getting yourself into. You're, you are embarking upon a career as a professional, technical writer. And uh, you, you, you got to get into that idea. If you can get into it, get, be excited about it, then great. That's, that's what you're going to be doing. And you'll be happy. But uh, if not, then I don't know. I don't know what kind of a lawyer you're going to be. Yeah. Since both of you went to law school, I know you guys usually say don't go to law school unless you want to be a lawyer. But if you didn't have to pay and you were even going part-time so you didn't have the opportunity cost of going to three years without losing your income, do you see a value in going through that educational process to, to learn the things you, you started to mention, bang, or any other things that you can learn and kind of reshape your mind? The question is... Uh if you're not going to practice law, but let's say, hypothetically, you could go for free, maybe go, par- go part-time so you could keep working, is there value, for people who are not going to be lawyers, is there value in the education that you will receive in law school? I felt like there was value when I was in law school. <laughs> I don't know if I feel that way anymore, but I do remember thinking, wow, uh, somehow I graduated from college and I didn't really appreciate how our federal government works. I didn't appreciate how everything interacts. I knew the three checks and balances. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, I remember thinking, this is like all making a lot more sense now, how everything interacts and relates and so forth. And I felt like it was very valuable as a citizen. But I'm not as concerned about those things anymore. I would say generally no. Like as a business person, I did not learn anything in law school that helps me at all. I, I mean, I just, the only thing I know is avoid lawyer, lawyers at all costs. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't really get anything very edifying out of the whole process. I was just extremely bored. I, I, I did not find my classes to be interesting I did not think that I was learning things that really had any value. I guess what Ben's saying about learning, you know, the way the system works, uh, that does make a lot of sense. It's just that you don't have to go to law school for three or four years in order to learn all that stuff. You could easily just buy books uh, and read those books. Or if you want to learn the law, you could read Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia does a much better job of explaining what the law is than every law school book anyway. Yeah. How about thinking like a lawyer? The whole thing about learning to think like a lawyer. Is that... I think the LSAT makes you think like a lawyer. I think you learn how to... I think, I think definitely studying the LSAT is going to sharpen up your thinking, for sure. I'm not... I don't know that... I, don't, I have a very cynical perspective, obviously. Law, law school, to me, seemed like it was an academic competition, and it was not... It didn't seem to me like it was really teaching anybody much of anything. I don't know. Yeah, the one, I do remember once when I was taking Will's Trust in the States, which is all about, um, you know, people die and stuff like that. Um, 
I remember thinking, just reading case after case and discussing them in class, case after case of you know people basically getting screwed um, by this the system. I was like, okay. I used to have this naive view that if you know you got accused of murder or whatever it was, like I would just go to the cops. I'd just be like, hey, look, I'll tell you anything. I just remember in that class just having that aha moment like it doesn't matter how innocent you are as soon as anything happens in your life that's remotely legal it's time to lawyer up because there's so many mistakes you just can't trust the system I'm not trying to be like philosophical or anything <laughs> I just just like in case after case of like innocent people just getting screwed because of some like loophole or the stupid way things work in, in the world so that was one takeaway from that but I just went into law school rather naive, thinking, you know, if you just do it right, you will all work out. <laughs> yes? I was wondering in terms of studying how much memorization you should do, like using flashcards for indicators and so forth. Yeah, so when you're studying, how much should you try to memorize, Nathan? Studying for the LSAT, how much you, should you memorize? Uh, almost nothing. You, you could memorize the definitions of sufficient and necessary. You could memorize the uh, two-step process for how to find a contrapositive. You could memorize, I mean, drilling question stems and question types could make some sense. I guess, I guess that's a, a good use of flashcards. Uh, you all have access to those already in the pre-class homework. Um, so, you know, just to read a question stem that says which one of the following is an assumption on which the argument depends or something like that. And then the other side says necessary assumption. Or on one side of the card it says necessary assumption method. And on the other side it says which one, if false, makes the argument lose. Little things like that, I think, could, could help a lot. But, boy, that, there's just not a whole lot of stuff to memorize. It's not a content. It's not really a test of content. Yeah, one of the group of things that I tend to memorize is all, only if, um, and unless. And it's really only those three, and I tend to refer to them as the LSAT trinity. <laughs> Which rubs some people the wrong way, but... Uh, uh, all equals if, only if equals then, right? And then unless equals if not. And uh, I think sometimes a lot of, so all is pretty easy, so it's not one that's really that important. I think most people realize all cats are purple means if you're a cat, then you're purple. Uh, but a lot of people get only if mixed up. For some reason, they flip it around. And so just knowing that only if introduces the necessary condition of the then clause is really helpful. And then you have unless, which equals if not, and a lot of people get tripped up on that one as well. So knowing those three, all, only, and unless are, are valuable. And then once you know those three, you can slowly over time easily add other words to e e any one of those categories. So for example, today we talked about each, and each equals if. So it's like, oh, well that falls under the all category, or whatever part of the trinity that is, you know? And so then you can just, and it's like you have those three words in those three categories, and words will just fall under there. The same is true with some, most, and all. Sometimes people don't realize that probably is the same as most, or likely is the same as most, or generally, or things like that. So if you know those three categories, some, most, and all, over time you can start 
adding other words to those categories, but you don't need to think of it as this big, massive thing. Instead of it's just like there's some fundamental concepts, and then over time you start adding little words to those groups, but you're not, all you're doing is filling out your knowledge of those basic ideas, not necessarily learning a ton of stuff. And it's usually better just to encounter them as you go. So would you put if and only if and only if then? No, those are, that's two separate that's two those separate two rules. Separate. rules. Yeah, if and only if. The easiest thing for that is just to remember that it's it goes both ways. Yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah, it goes both ways. Any more questions? Jenny? Yeah, I was trying to ask you. Okay, uh, what would you add to your study time? Like, that will be fundamental and productive for your study, like in the long term. I mean, I know that you mentioned cell phone and meditation, and I apply myself nutrition, but what, but what would you add? Like, so the question is, what would you add to your study? Time, like meaning like... Regimen? Yeah. yeah, like, so you're saying, uh, you've added, in addition to doing time, 35-minute sections, exercise, meditation, and nutrition? Yeah. yeah. I don't think those are bad things. I don't know that I would... The problem with creating a list of too many things is that then it can be stressful and it's like, oh, I haven't done all these things. The shorter your list, the more likely it is that you're going to do whatever it is you do consistently. So, for example, if I tell you to do one thing, um, you're 10 times more likely to do that every day than if I tell you, well, every day I think you should do three things. Because those now it's like you do one of them, or it just seems overwhelming to do all of them, so then you do none of them. So almost always my default study schedule to people who don't have any plan whatsoever is do one 35-minute section a day for four days of the week, and then every other weekend do a full-length time test. So on average, you're doing like one to two tests per week. And then anything else that you can do on top of that, great. But if you stick to that and you start getting in the habit of doing that, everything else is a bonus. But you don't want to work on anything else until that becomes like a consistent habit and that's what you're doing. Makes sense. I might add uh, sleep to your list of things. Yes. No, that is so true. I can't believe how many people stay up studying for three hours. And it's like the last hour and a half are actually probably counterproductive because you're tired and you're developing bad habits because you're getting lazy as opposed to forcing yourself to predict an answer. You're not tired. It would have been more effective for you to just study for an hour, stop, and go to bed. Especially since a good chunk of the LSAT, I don't know a percentage, but a good chunk of your score is solely a function of how focused you were in the moment you did the question. Right? How many questions do you get wrong and you go back and like, oh, I should have read that more carefully. Well, why didn't you read it more carefully? I was getting mentally tired or lazy or something like that. And if you're not sleepy because you're studying so much and trying to do all these other things, then sleep itself would just solve the problem. Yeah, people think that sleep is like being lazy or something, but it's a very important part of your self-care, and your brain will function much better if you uh, sleep yeah. more. You just it too. right, it's almost. Oh yeah. Yeah, like if, of all those things, maybe that's just adding discipline to your sleep schedule. Yeah, I'm not saying you don't have discipline. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people they go to bed at like two or. 
they say I'm doing an LSAT. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> that, that is, yeah, that is really crazy. Only, total, especially after drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you were really up last night. You were doing sections of the LSAT last night after we got home from the bar at 2 a.m. You're an animal. Uh, 24 hours before the test, what do you do or what do you not do? 24 hours before the test, what do you do or not do? You do not study at all. Zero. Zero studying within the last 24 hours. The hay is in the barn. Yep. Sleep, exercise, uh, go to a movie. Um, what? Eat an ice cream cone? Yeah. Turn out your ticket, I guess. Get your bag ready so you're not stressing out in the morning. Yeah, just not studying. I mean, you need to be tapering that down in the last few days before the test. And for sure, the day before, I don't... No studying at all. You got to declare victory. You have to, you have to send yourself the message that you're ready. And taking that day off is a good way to do that. Well, and also just the reality, right? This is a skills-based test. You cannot develop skills in 24 hours. So stop. There's no benefit. And so now your true benefit is going to come from focus and energy the next day. So if you're draining yourself by studying and stressing out about that, I really like going to a movie. I feel like it just takes people off from whatever they're doing. Yeah. Netflix or whatever it is. I like going to a movie. Netflix, there's too much like stopping and you're, you're checking your phone and you're doing all that kind of stuff. I like, I like going... Yeah, people, I think when you're at home, it's just too easy to be distracted by a million other things. In the movie theater, you know, unless you're like a total asshole, you're not going to be on your phone. And so I, I just like it that they are in charge. Like They're going to dim the lights. It's, it's, you're on their schedule. You know, you show up, you get your popcorn, whatever. You go sit in the dark and they put on a show for you. What's going on? Got crazy noise going on in the room. Um you you you're not in control so they uh so sorry i'm distracted by that noise um since you're not in control and the show isn't going to stop it's just like you you're into the entertainment it's just like a whole big show for you and you're not doing anything you have no responsibilities whatsoever i like the just complete shut off of the actual going to a movie uh experience I think there's a lot of value in taking yourself out to eat too, or whatever it is that will like lessen the things that you have to do that day, because willpower is shown to be a diminishing resource. So if you are lazy in some ways the day before the test, you're like building up that willpower. You're keeping reserves for the next day, and so you just go and put all your energy into taking the test and chilling out as you take the test. Um, we're over time for today, so we probably, maybe, if, do we have one more question? Yeah. Um, so if we're registered for both July and September, and in July we get a score that's like what we're predicting, how do we go, like what do we do afterwards to prepare for September? Do we keep doing the 35 minutes? The question is, if you're registered for both July and September and you get a score in July that is like what matches what you've been doing on your practice tests, how do you continue preparing for the September test? Um, 
yeah, I mean, keep doing like Ben just was talking about, the, the basic routine of one section a day, most days, a full test every once in a while, thorough review of all your mistakes. Uh, when you're re-preparing, or you're, if, you, if you were prepared for July, well, maybe you'll get a great score and you won't have to take it in September. That'd be good. Then you could withdraw and get your refund. <laughs> um, but otherwise, you know, I, I don't, it's not like you need to do more. You might have already done the bulk of the work, and so now all you have to do is just sort of, yeah, a section most days to keep making forward progress. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think anything would change. Just, if you've run out of tests, sometimes people are worried about that. Right? Like they've taken a the lot of the recent tests. If you've taken all of the recent tests, and usually what I tell people is, well, take an older test, but then take a recent test, and just alternate between the two, and take a recent test that you haven't seen for a while. I don't know. It's like an airplane noise. It sounds really loud. Yeah, they're drying something. Yeah. 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 And LSAC said, as a courtesy, did I tell you this? No. I will transfer you, the person on the phone, to September for free. What? <laughs> it was as a courtesy. When was this? This was uh, about four or five days ago. So, if you decide not to take the test of July, it wouldn't hurt to call them and just say, as a courtesy, <laughs> I'd appreciate to be transferred to the September LSAT for free. Have we talked about before the thing where if you just say a reason, you're more likely to be approved for yeah. things generally? Just yeah, when you ask people. Because and then whatever. Yeah, give me a dollar because it, it's nice weather. Like something that's irrelevant, but you're actually it's it, when you when you add the because that reason, even if the reason is stupid, it still makes it more likely that you'll get what you want. So yeah, you could just call LSAC and just ask them for things, but just give a dumb reason. Does it happen to someone else? That's a pretty good reason. Yeah. My friend just told me that she got transferred for free. Could I be transferred for free too? That is a good reason. I mean. Seems like fairness, yeah. I, it's, I bet it just depends who you get when you call the LSAC bunker. That day, it must have just been the B team was answering the phone. So that, <laughs> that sounds like the A team, actually. The B team was the assholes. No, it's not that, well, not from their perspective. From their perspective, the A team is the ones that make money, you know. The, I don't know, though. Don't they, like, feeling the heat, maybe? And that's why, like, oh, it's a change. new, kinder, gentler. The B team is LSAC, yeah, cool. Yeah, well, they have that new position, right? Director of customer delight. Delight. Customer delight. That's right. All right. I think we should probably wrap it up there, Ben. What do you think? No, but that's okay. All right. Uh, That was episode 148. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. 
Don't pay for law school.